Welcome to the City Church. My name is Anthony. Um, I have the honor and privilege of being one of the pastors here, as well as uh, the great joy of being able to spend uh, the next several moments with you, opening the scriptures and thinking about our God and who he is and what he's done and why all of that matters. Uh, if you're new, welcome. I uh, would love to be able to meet you if uh, I haven't been able to already. If after service you want to introduce yourself and I can introduce myself to you, that'd be awesome. Um, but also need to let you in on what's taking place during this time um, in our gathering. So for us as a community, as we gather together, we do things like sing together and pray together, but we also get into the scriptures together um, because we believe that it's a tremendous gift grace of God to uh, let us in on who he is and what he's like and we believe that uh, he's done that uh, through the scriptures to point us to his son who is really the ultimate revelation of who he is and so uh, we take significant time in the midst of our gatherings to open the scriptures to study them and the way that we do this is uh, typically we take a theme a topic one of the books of the Bible or in this case we're actually working through a section of the scriptures and uh, really just kind of for weeks on end we unpack that theme or topic or section and so a few weeks ago we started this series um, that we've titled The King's Cross, and uh, what we're thinking about and considering is this particular section found in the Gospel according to Mark. So Mark was one of Jesus's earliest followers, um, but he is recording this most likely from the experience and stories of the Apostle Peter, who was one of Jesus's not just earliest followers, but also one of his closest friends and disciples. And so Mark, uh, he's telling this story about Jesus and who he is and what he's about and much of his teaching, and then in chapters 11 through 16, he narrows his focus into this uh, final week of Jesus' life, which includes his death and his resurrection. And uh, we thought it would be good for us as a church community to, uh, to dig into this section of scripture leading up and through Easter uh, to just think about the last week of Jesus' life. And so... Um, Part of the way that we're doing this also as a community is we're giving you advance notice uh, what's going to be preached on or taught um, the upcoming Sunday. Um, because we're, uh, we're having all of our gospel communities uh, think through these passages leading up to the study on Sunday mornings. We want you to be able to meditate on it, think through it, even memorize some of it if you can. Um, and so this week we're in 11, Mark 11, uh, verses, where are we, 27 through 1212, I think. And then next week, it's hard to keep two weeks in a row in my mind. Next week we're going to be in 1213 through, I think, like verse 34. And so I uh, would love for you to engage this week in reading that passage leading up to next Sunday. Think through it again, meditate on it, journal through it. And if if you're in a small group, discuss it. Even if you're not, like over lunch or something, um, after you've been thinking through it, just have a conversation with people so that when you show up on Sunday, it's just a, a lot more fresh. And so uh, today we're digging into, um, like I said, 11 uh, verses 27 through uh, chapter 12, verse 12. Uh, it's a really interesting uh, passage that I'm excited to uh, dig in with you. So if you have a Bible, uh, that's where we're picking it up. I will read the section and then uh, we'll pray together briefly and dig in. So, they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you a question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. They discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, then he'll say, why then didn't you believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, uh, we don't know. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. This is the parable. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower. He leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came... He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent them another servant, 
They struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. He sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come, and he'll destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. And so they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. Again, no controversy from Jesus here at all. <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you, for, uh, thank you for the moment and time that you've given to us uh, this morning to, uh, to focus our attention um, Focus our attention on uh, what it is that you've done in uh, loving us by way of giving your son. And uh, we ask that uh, this morning we would give our, our minds and our hearts over to uh, the work of your spirit, that you would mold and shape as you show us uh, your son more clearly. So make him, uh, make him more the center of our of our attention, uh, make him more beautiful, more glorious to us this morning than he was when we first woke up, or even yesterday, that we might be blown away by uh, his goodness and his grace and his love. We ask this in his most matchless and most precious name, and all God's people said, "Amen, amen and amen." Um, so I think one of the one of the worst feelings that a, a person can have, uh, obviously, there's some that are clear, like when you're facing health issues or you have a family member who's facing one or even death, like that's a terrible feeling. But, but in just living life, I think one of the worst feelings that, that a human being can have is the feeling of regret. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if everybody in here has felt the feeling of regret at some point where you look back at a decision that you made, something that you said, um, something that you did, uh, an interaction that you might have had with a person and Maybe it was relational, maybe it was financial, maybe it had to do with your career or where it is that you were going to live. But you look back and there's some element of, ah, I wish I had, I wish I had done something different. What's even worse than, than that is if you add to that, that whole scenario, is if there was somebody actually trying to help you to not make that decision. Right? You, you actually had somebody speaking into your life and saying, if I were you, here's what I would or wouldn't do. And they do their best to sit down with you and to really unpack this decision with you and to sympathize with you and to try to compel you in the right direction. And they're like, this, I think, is not a good idea or this is probably a better idea. And so you had this person or maybe even a group of people, maybe even your whole family, trying to invest in you to make sure that your future goes, goes well for you, right? They want the best for you. But instead of listening to them, you decided to do the other thing. You made a different decision. You said a different thing. You chose a different path. And you look back, and not only do you regret the decision that you made, but you're like, oh, man, I wish I had just listened to them. I wish that I had just taken in the truth that they were, the advice that they were trying to give. I don't know why I disregarded them, why I thought that I was smarter, why I thought that I could make a better decision. I wish I had just listened to them. There it was right there, the answer. Like, they'd given it. I wish I had just listened, right? If you've ever experienced that, it's, it's quite terrible, right? Because you, just, you wish you could just go back in time and change things. What I think Jesus is getting at here is that like, he's, he's in front of a group of people that I think Jesus loves deeply. Um, even if you, uh, 
if you consider them his enemies, Jesus would say to love them, and then he actually would do it because that's what he taught and did. And these people who are sitting right in front of him or are having this conversation with him, undoubtedly he loves and he cares for. And he feels the need to speak with them. And the reason that he feels the need to speak with them is he wants them to wake up. He wants them to not go down the path that he knows that they are going. He, he's, he's trying to say to them, just please listen, don't, don't go down that road. Don't go down that road. There's something better for you. He's trying to wake them up, right? And it might seem kind of stark in the way that he does it, but sometimes that's necessary, right? Sometimes it's necessary to intervene in a way that is, that is powerful, that is bold. And I think that's what's going on here. Jesus has such a great love that he is going to intrude upon um, these people's lives, and I would argue even intrude upon our lives with this kind of boldness to try to say, please don't, don't go down that road, right? And so in this passage, um, I want to think with you about a few things. The, the first is just how it is that it's revealing Jesus, primarily that it, his boldness, his confidence in this, then also his subversive tactics, how it is that he approaches to try to get them to not go down this path, but then also like what I'm going to call just his, his, his just reckless love um, in, in terms of how it is that he tries to reach them. So his, his boldness, then his subversive tactics, and then also his, his reckless love. And then we'll get into briefly at the end like how it is that he's then provoking us in to reconciliation and renewal because that's what Jesus is all about is reconciliation and renewal. And that's what our church is about too. And so let's think first of all about just the straight boldness of Jesus. If you look back, notice how this, this whole context is laid forth for us. It says, so they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. So there's a context being set up by Mark here to let us know what's really going on right now. The reason I highlighted Jerusalem is because if you've been paying attention from the beginning of Mark chapter 11, this would be the third time that Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. And this is a really important place at a really important time, right? Jerusalem is the city of God, anointed such by King David. So it's a very important place for the Jewish people, but especially during this time. This is the last week of Jesus' life. It's also the week of Passover, and this is the third time that he's gone in. So Mark is like, do you remember he went in? Do you remember he went in? Look, at he's going going in again, okay? The first time he goes in, he's riding in on a donkey and they're screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He is king, he is savior. So he's making a bold statement about his kingship. The second time he goes in, we looked at last week, he goes into the temple, he turns over the tables and he chases people out. This is the third time he's going in. Mark's point is like something significant is happening here. But not only does he lay out the city that he's going into, but he's also laying out the specific place in that city. He's going into the temple. So again, this is, the, this is actually the third time he's gone into Jerusalem and into the temple. When he rides in on the donkey, it says that he goes in and he looks around and he's like, meh, and then leaves. The second time he goes in and he turns over the tables within the temple courts. Now he's going into Jerusalem and into the temple again. Now this is an extremely significant piece of this because this was the place where people met with God. This is the place where, where the Jewish people saw God coming down to earth. Like this is where the divine and the human interacted together. Like this is an extremely significant place, especially for these people that he now introduces. These people who come to Jesus, who are they? Well, they're the, they're the priests, they're the scribes, right? They're, these are the religious elites. These are the, the people in power are coming to Jesus. Now, to kind of understand the scene and the significance of it and their power and what's really going on here, think about this like really in terms of, of politics because that's what's going on here. There's, there's a power struggle at place going on, right? That's what's going on. There's a power struggle. So think of you going to, say, um, 
City Hall and you, you pull off some kind of crazy protest and so much so that, that later that day and even the next morning, people are talking about it. It's in the news. They're like, whoa, this crazy guy just came over and did this nutty thing and it was absurd, right? And they, so then the next day, you go back. It would be like, what is he doing here? What, who does this person think that he is? Like, and, and of course, the people who are in charge of City Hall, the people with power, they're going to come out and they're going to confront you because yesterday you did something really crazy and sure you left, but maybe assuming you're never going to come back, but you come back, okay, we've, we've got a beef with you. There's, there's something that needs to be addressed here, right? And that's what's going on here. The religious elites are coming to Jesus because they're recognizing their power being pushed against. Somebody who's making a claim of even greater power. Now think of this, right? If this were to happen to any one of us, the way that we probably should feel is a little bit of fear, right? Because when you get the people who are in power coming at you, you feel subject at least to some degree, so you should be feeling some element of fear, right? Think of it this way. Um, you don't need to raise your hand, but if you were ever brought into the principal's office when you were a kid, do, do you remember, like, either when your teacher said, hey, you got to go to the principal's office, or they passed you a note, or God forbid they actually announce it over the speakers? <laughs> were you in schools where they did that? I totally remember them doing that when I was a kid. Do you remember the sense of fear that came over you? <laughs> and the reason that sense of fear came over you is because there's an authority, And that's the way you should feel when you're subject to the authority. When you know that you're about to be confronted by the authority, you should feel some element of fear. Or think about uh, this, and again, you don't have to raise your hand, but you're going a little bit over the speed limit. And you're driving down the highway, and you notice there's a police car off to the side. What happens inside of you? It's like your whole gut sinks, right? You you turn down the music because you think that's going to keep him from pulling you over. (laughs) But your, your your whole gut just like sinks, because you recognize that there's an authority there, right? And that's the way you should feel. There should be some element of fear, right? Or think about even just when you were a kid with your parents. You wait till your father gets home. <gasps> Do you remember that? Do you remember that feeling, right? And that's a right feeling because there's an authority above you confronting you. That's the right feeling. Jesus doesn't feel this at all. He sees the people in, in power, like the most powerful people in the temple courts coming at him, and he feels no fear at all. In fact, notice what carries on. So they say to him, and they ask him this question. It's a very important question. They say, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Now, when they ask this question, they're asking a good question. They're in authority. When, when authority is coming against your authority, you should be asking who gave you the right to think that you can just take our authority, right? And, and so if you're, if you're protecting people, if you're protecting a place and you have the authority over it, it's right for you to say, you seem to be wanting to destroy the thing that I'm supposed to be protecting. So to ask the question is right. It's good. It's honorable even. But not only that, in the Jewish tradition, it was, it was what they were supposed to do. Like they had to do this. It, w- it was declared in the Old Testament that when a prophet claimed to be a prophet, like when a person claimed to be a prophet, they should be put to the test. Right? And so the people, the community, should be saying, well, if you're claiming to be a prophet, we need to test you. And Jesus was claiming to be a prophet just before this when he turned over the tables. That was his claim. And so they're saying, well, we're supposed to be protecting this thing and our authority, and it's right for us to be asking you this question. So they say, from our authority, from our position, we are coming at you to ask you, who do you think that you are? Right? Notice what Jesus does in response. And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you a question. <laughs> Think about this for a second. The principal sits you down. And he says, do you know why you're in here? And you say, 
well, do you know who gave you the right to call me in here? <laughs> or the police officer, do you know how fast you were going? Do you know who purchased that vehicle for you with my taxes? I mean, just come on, dude. You don't, you don't do that, right? And God forbid you would do something like this to your parents. They sit you down. Could you, like, you know the story, right? You've probably done that with your parents. But this is what Jesus is doing. You, they're allowed to be asking a question because they're in authority. But Jesus is saying, no, no. I'll do, I'll do the asking of questions here. So he says, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority that I do these things. And what does he do? He asks them a question. He says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. What a weird question to be asking. Is Jesus just giving them a theological quiz to see if they can come up with the right answer? Like, what's really going on here? Well, again, in the context, this all has to do with authority. So the fact that Jesus is asking a question is him saying that I have authority, but the question that he's asking is also in itself a claim to authority. And not just any authority, but deity. And, and here's what I mean, right? The only way you can really understand what Jesus is getting at is if you understand the baptism of John. That's why Jesus brings it up. What is the baptism of John really all about? Well, if you were, if you were in the first century reading through or having somebody read to you the Gospel of Mark, they would just do it all in one sitting. And there would be things that you would, you know, you would pick up the breadcrumbs as the story's carrying on. What is the, the baptism of John? Well, if you were sitting there reading it, you'd go right back to chapter one. And in chapter one, you read about the baptism of John. I want to show you what it says. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so John was back there baptizing. He was a prophet. The people believed him to be a prophet. He was calling people out and he was dunking them in the water for the repentance of sins, forgiveness of sins, so that they would pave the way for the one who was to come. Now notice here Mark speaks of John and his baptism by quoting Old Testament prophets. It says specifically that he quoted from Isaiah, as Isaiah said, but he's actually quoting from Malachi as well as Isaiah. And Jesus, Jesus knew what was going on here, right? And, and so when, when Mark goes back to the baptism of John and he says, this is what was happening. You're supposed to be thinking, do you remember what the prophets said or what John's baptism is really all about? The only way you can see this and understand it is if you go back to the ones that he's quoting and then you start to see that Jesus is just like a scripture ninja. Look at what happens in Malachi. He says, behold, this is Malachi. This is what Mark's quoting from. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, right? But he wants you to understand the whole passage here too. So, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. See, what Jesus is doing, they're like, they, they want to ask him a question, and he goes, well, let me ask you a question. John's baptism, was it of heaven? Because John's baptism was about the ushering in of one who would come into the temple and refine it. That's what Jesus is getting at, and they would have immediately been like, whoa, Jesus, like, he's really being confrontational here. But he's not just quoting from Malachi, he's also quoting from Isaiah. And if you look at the passage in Isaiah where he's quoting, it says this, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and notice this, and every mountain and hill 
be made low. The uneven ground shall become leaven. We'll get back to that in just a second. The rough places of plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice this. Who is, who is John paving the way for? He says right there, for God. For God. But notice also what is included in this passage. He is going to get rid of every mountain. Do you remember last week at the end of Jesus turning over the tables, exiting the temple and seeing the fig tree again? Do you remember this? He goes back to the fig tree. The fig tree is withered. And Peter goes, look at the fig tree that you cursed. It's withered. And Jesus says, have faith in God. Command this mountain to move and it'll be thrown into the sea. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's, he's trying to, to let them to see like what the claim that he is making is that he is God, that he is God in the flesh. That's what he's trying to get across to them. So when he asks this question, it's not just a theological quiz. He, he's saying, do you believe to be, me to be God? And when he does this, he, he's, not, he's not acting the way that any other person with authority could possibly act. Anybody with authority up until this point would have to be given the authority, right? Like, that's the way that you get authority. When somebody who has authority, they give it to you, right? So they're in charge, and they go, here, you can be in charge, right? If I'm the owner of a business and I let these managers manage, then I'm giving away the authority, right? Because I have it now, I pass it off to them. That's the way authority works. What Jesus is saying here is nobody gave me authority. I just simply have it. Like, he's not appealing to a prophet who gave him authority. He's saying, I just have it. Like, I intrinsically have greater authority than any other human being on the planet. Like, that's what he's doing to them in this conversation. Like, it's, it, it's actually quite mind-blowing. They would have been extremely startled for somebody to say this sort of a thing, right? And so notice, as the story carries on, they discussed it with one another. Could you, like, what, how does this conversation happen? Hey, that guy just claimed to be God. What do you think? <laughs> how do you guys feel about that? What a weird conversation. Saying, well, if we say it did come from heaven, then he'll say, well, then why didn't you believe him? But shall we say, well, from man? But they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, well, we don't know. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus is being confronted, but as soon as he's confronted, he confronts back. And he's doing this because he sees the state in which these people are in. And now as he, as he gets into the parable, you can see where he's really trying to dig deep with them and to help their eyes be opened because he does, I think, have a great love even for his enemies. And so what carries on? Notice, he began to speak to them in parables like you do. Do you ever do this with your friends? Like they ask you a difficult question. You're like, let me tell you a parable. <laughs> we don't speak in parables very much. I think we should. We should pick up this old tradition. I think it's kind of fun and it's, it's entertaining. But what Jesus is doing here is he, he's really, he's, he's pushing forward exactly the claim that he was just making. Like as, as not just the, as a prophet, but the prophet of prophets. This is what prophets did. Prophets, uh, they helped the authority of God be seen, to be known by way of parables because parables make you think. They make you pause. They make you really reflect and dig into like what's going on here. If he just said, I am God, it might not have clicked. So he, he begins to dig in with them through this parable and notice how it starts. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it and he dug a pit for the wine press and he built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And this is super, super important the way that Jesus starts this parable and why he would choose this kind of parable. Notice the words that I highlighted right there, that a man went into a vineyard. Now for them, this would have immediately conjured up some Old Testament scripture and prophet, namely Isaiah in chapter five. We'll get to it in just a second. But Jesus here is trying to make them go right to that place. The same way, like think about it like this. If I go 
if I like make some kind of uh, musical noise or uh, if I make some kind of statement, we, we have uh, ideas and things attached to those, right? So think of it like this, right? Just like, you don't have to close your eyes, but think for, just let your mind be clear for a second and hear this and think of, like, just think of an image, okay? Dun, 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 Like, even if you're not a fan, which I'm not, like, Darth Vader comes to mind, right? I mean, you can't, you can't just like not picture that. So when, when, that, when that tone comes across, right, your mind goes right to that place, right? Or think in a galaxy far, far away, you know, right? As soon as you hear that phrase, like something comes to mind. And it's a whole story that comes to mind. It's, really, it's not just the image of that, of that uh, evil villain, right? It's the whole story that that thing represents. When Jesus starts a parable speaking to the religious elites who, mind you, know the Old Testament very well. When he starts a parable, there was a man who planted a vineyard. They would have immediately went to Isaiah 5, and I want you to see it. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's super important. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. Notice the way that the prophet starts this. It sounds so lovey-dovey. In fact, this is a phrase that's used in the Song of Songs over and over and over again to speak of a romantic relationship. Look at it as it carries on. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. Do you see this? This is what Jesus was just saying in the parable, right? All these things that God was going to do, was doing. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. He carries on and he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And so now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it should be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it should be trampled down. I'll make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up I will also command the clouds that the rain, uh, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Like They would have known this story from Isaiah, this parable that Isaiah tells. And as soon as Jesus says, a man went to plant a vineyard, they would have been like, we're the vineyard. We're the house of Israel. And Jesus is now about to tell a parable about him coming to the vineyard of which they are now a part of. That's immediately where their minds would have went. And notice what it says that he is going to look for. Back in verse seven again. He says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. This is the Hebrew word mishpat. But behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, or tzedakah, but behold, an outcry. When Jesus comes as God to inspect his vineyard, of which they are, he's looking for justice and he's looking for righteousness. But what Isaiah says that God finds when he inspects his vineyard is bloodshed and outcry. What Jesus is saying to these guys is look around. There's not justice here. There's not righteousness here. There's bloodshed and there's outcry. And these are hugely important concepts um, that, that have to do with what fruit in the world actually looks like. The idea of justice um, that we mentioned, you notice in other places in the scriptures, just so you can see, it has to do with societal equity, right? It has to do with, with 
the, the taking away of oppression, which is injustice, and, and equaling the playing field for humanity. Notice in Proverbs, it says, by justice, a king builds up the land. Of course, because he has the power and the authority and he has, he has ability to be able to do something about inequity and injustice, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. Or the king who uses his power to take, to keep the poor poor and to keep the marginalized marginalized, that's injustice. Or notice in Jeremiah 5, Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they become great and rich. They've grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice. They don't make their decisions based on human flourishing and equity. The cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Do you see this? Defending the rights of those who are outcast is what justice looks like. But Jesus gets into this vineyard of these people and he says, you're using your power to oppress You're using your power to corrupt. You're using your power just for own personal gain, to raise yourself up, right, so that you can be better than everybody. Or the idea of righteousness is more about um, really right relationships or this individual kind of justice. So look, for instance, in Proverbs. Righteousness, or tzedakah, guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. Or in Jeremiah 22. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. And notice this, deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. That's what righteousness looks like. The person who's been robbed, helping them in their situation, doing something about it. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, to the fatherless, to the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. In other words, do what is right to everybody. Whatever situation they're in, Do right to them. That's what righteousness is, right? To do right by. That's the way we would talk about it in English, right? Which is very relationally based, right? So so for instance, for me to do right by my wife might look actually different than any of you married men in here doing right by your wife because they're different people. Now there's generalities, right? There's general things that are good, but there's also an, an understanding of meeting them exactly where they are and doing right by them. The same for you, you wives to to be righteous towards your husband. Same idea. It's very thoughtful. It's very intentional. It's the same with kids. Each kid is different. To, be, to do right by a child is to meet them where they're at and to do everything to, to get them into the place where God would have them to go. Or even your neighbor. To do right by your neighbor is to, to obey the laws, to shovel your sidewalks when you're supposed to. People, come on. <laughs> right? To do right by, there's, there's things that you're supposed to do in every relationship. That's what righteousness is. Jesus enters into this vineyard And he says, on a societal level, you are all corrupt. And on an individual level, you don't even care. In fact, what's actually happening is there's bloodshed. There's outcry. It's the exact opposite of what it is that he's looking for. And so Jesus enters in and he begins to tell this parable so that he might wake them up. Notice how personal he makes it as he carries on, that they might see themselves in the story. So when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. We'll get back to that Hebrew word there in just a second. But notice this. What he's trying to do is saying, I want you to see yourself in the story. Okay? Like, you asked me about my authority, I'm going to tell you a story, and I want you to see yourself in the story. Like, that's the point. The they, they knew full well, was them. So he draws them into the story so that he might say, look it, wake up and listen. There, there's evil taking place, and you're a huge part of it. 
And I, want you, I don't want you to go down this road any longer. Like, that's the point. This, this needs to stop. You know what you're doing is wrong. Wake up, get out of it. This is not going to end well. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's drawing them into the story so that they might awaken to their evil deeds. Like, you know, you've, you've experienced this in the past before, I'm sure. Maybe not from a family member or friend at, at an adult age, but certainly when you were a child. You remember your parents sitting you down and saying, this is not going to go well for you. Like the way that you're treating your brother or your sister or that other person, it's only going to result in them not wanting to be around you. That's what's going to happen. If you keep going down this road, it's not going to be good for you. That's what Jesus is drawing them into the story so they might see themselves. But notice here at the end, he says, they will respect my son. This is the, the Hebrew word ben. This is actually the same word that was used when after John the Baptist baptized Jesus and, and the, the heavens opened and the father spoke. Do you remember he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You see Jesus here, he's, he's just like this Bible ninja, man. He's, he's like, what about the baptism of John? You remember when the father pronounced me as Ben, his beloved son? Now I'm telling you a parable about the Ben that you killed. Like he's talking about himself here again, right? He's getting them to see who he actually is in it. And so he carries on and he says, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. Now at this point, they know who the him is. They're looking right at the him. Jesus told them what it is that they were all about, the injustice and the unrighteousness that they were about. And he also even now is prophesying to them that if they keep going down this road, what they're going to do is they're going to kill the beloved son of God. They're going to kill God in the flesh. It's like he's looking at them and he's saying, you're going to kill me. Like, Jeez. So he's trying to grab their heart. He's saying, listen, you can't, don't go down this road. You're going to kill the only son of God. Don't go down this road. He carries on. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he'll come and he'll destroy the tenants and he'll give the vineyard to others. And so have you not read this? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the eben in Hebrew. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. See, what Jesus is doing here, again, he's, he's trying to get them to see this now even in another way. Like he's going out of his way to try to wake them up by quoting these other passages. This is taken from Psalm 118 where it says, open to me the gates of righteousness. They would have known this, right? So look at how he's tying these words together. Open the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. See, if you keep going down this road, you're going to kill the Ben. And if you keep going down this road, you're going to reject the Eben. And both of these are super important metaphors. The only son of God, but then also this stone. This stone, I have some pictures of, of a cornerstone. If you can catch a, like just think about how big this stone is. Like those are already huge steps, but these things are massive. They're not really that important to us in our day, but in their day, man, this thing had to, it had to be able to carry the building on top of it. It had to be perfectly straight in order for it to have a building that would be, you know, last any length of time. What he's saying here is like, I'm that. I'm the sun and I'm the stone. If you keep going down this road of rejecting the Ben, killing the Ben and rejecting the cornerstone, you've got nothing. This whole thing is going to crumble. Notice where he is. 
He's in the temple. Like there, he, he could have said, the cornerstone, like it's right there, guys. You know what we're talking about here? If you reject that, this whole thing crumbles. So the power that you wield because of this system, it's all going to go down. And eventually he's going to speak to this in, in Mark 13 when he says, no stone will be left unturned. So what Jesus is doing is he's, he's trying his best to get them to wake up to the reality that they're in. And I think another way that he does this and is often mis, mis, um, or, I'm sorry, overlooked is the way in which he depicts just the crazy, reckless love of God. Notice, uh, notice this again. He began to speak to them in parables, right? He says, a man planted. This man put a fence in. This man dug a pit. This man built a tower. This man leased it to the tenants. Notice the, the outgoing nature of the owner of this vineyard. He gives and he gives and he gives. These people haven't earned anything, but here he is just giving and giving and giving. Now, this wouldn't have just taken their minds to Isaiah 5. It also would have taken their minds to the garden, which is the vineyard. Like the vineyard is the garden of Eden. You remember the story in Genesis where God makes everything, but then he makes a special place. It says he makes a garden, and he puts humanity in the garden to work it and to keep it, and he says, look it, you can have any of this fruit except for the one, anything, it's all yours. Like, he's going out of his way. Humanity hasn't earned anything, but he's like, here, just take, take. I want to give, I want to give, because that's just the nature of God. He in himself, as love, just gives. Like, that's what he does. And that's what Jesus is drawing on here, too, is like, the nature of God is to just give and give and give. But even if it weren't just the vineyard, he begins to speak about also meeting them where they were at, even in their sin. Notice, again, in the parable, you go on, and it says, he sent a servant and then he sent to them another servant. And then he sent another servant. And then so with many others. Like when they spiral out of control, what does God do? He doesn't go, you know what? No, he keeps on going in. Like this is what the story of Israel is all about, is God in constant pursuit of his people. Like he never gives up. Even when you try to run, he chases you. Like this is what Jesus is getting at here. He's not just saying, like I need to wake you up about the sin that you're involved in right now, but you need to understand who God is. God is a God who's been in pursuit of you and you're throwing it all away. Like, don't throw it away. And if that weren't enough, he carries on and he says, and he's still one another, one more, a beloved son. And so he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. And Jesus is saying, you know, the story of Israel is that God is in constant pursuit of his people that even when they want nothing to do with him, he pursues. And guess what? He hasn't stopped He hasn't stopped. In fact, the one standing right in front of you is proof that he hasn't stopped. I'm standing right in front of you to prove to you that no matter how evil you think you could possibly be or have been, I'm not done pursuing you. Like, that's what's going on here. Do you realize that? Like, think about this for just a second. Whatever brokenness you've brought into the world, he's not done with you. Whatever terrible decisions that you've made that you regret, that you've caused brokenness between you and other people, whatever crimes you've committed, whatever heinous things you've done, thought, said, he's not done pursuing you. And that list in your mind might be so long or even just one thing, just so crazy huge that you're like, no, he's got to be done with me. I'm telling you, he's not. Like, he's not. That's what's going on here. Even these evil people, he's standing right in front of and saying, God sent his son even for you. Like, that's everybody in this room. Listen, there's nobody that is worse than these guys. None of you are worse than these guys. They're going to kill Jesus. He's, he's seeking after you. D- don't think otherwise. Don't think you're beyond 
his love beyond his grasp. He is pursuing you even in this very moment. And so with that, like, he's calling us to this as well, right? He's, he's calling us to, to be like him in this world, to be, be his very presence in pursuit of even our enemies. And so how is he calling us to, to reconciliation and renewal? And I want to say a couple things. Um, the first, I think, is that we need to, in order to be about reconciliation and renewal, we need to let Jesus ask us some questions. Because that's what's going on here, right? Like, we're all, we're all inclined, we all have the tendency to, to take ownership of our own vineyard, to think that we're good enough and to use what it is that we have, you know, to oppress others or to exalt self. We're all inclined to do this. And Jesus enters in and he begins to ask questions. He doesn't want us to go down that path. He doesn't want us to keep going down that road that, that he knows is destructive. He knows it. And so he, he calls us to, to just let him ask. Notice how in Psalm 139 it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Like that's, that's the kind of heart that he wants us to have, is to let him enter in and just ask difficult questions. And so I, I would ask you, like, are we willing to let God ask difficult questions of us today? Are, are we the kind of people who, who go, no, no, I got a question for you? Or do we say, go ahead, ask me. Ask me the difficult question. I don't want to live this life and make decisions that I regret. I, I truly want to follow after you, and so ask me some difficult questions. And so what if, what if he were asking you? Like, what if he were asking you right now, like, you husbands, I've given you a bride. Are you letting me be king in your marriage? You wives, I've given to you a husband. Are you letting me be king? Are you loving this vineyard? Is there injustice or unrighteousness? Like you parents, like I've given you these children. Do you use them for your own selfish gain? Or do you want to see them flourish and thrive? Like, are you letting me be king in your family? In your, in your work? Like, I've, I've given you the opportunity to, to use your hands and to use your mind and to use your body and your energy to, to bring life into this world. Are you using that just for your own accolades, for your own finances so that you can buy more, have more? Or is it actually about bringing flourishing into the world? Are you letting him be king in your work, in your finances? Hold on, Anthony. <laughs> no, but really, like he's given to us all some measure of resource. And he would ask us, I think, like, is it just all about you? Or are you letting me be king here? Like, I want to bring flourishing into the world. I don't want you to look back and regret and say, man, I wish I would have loved my spouse more. Man, I wish I would have loved my kids more. Man, I wish I would have spent my money differently. Man, I wish I would have made different decisions. And right now he's like, you can. You can make different decisions, like right now. Like right now, you can let him be king. If you're having a hard time loving your spouse, he's saying, I can give you strength for that. If you're having a hard time loving your kids, he's saying, I can give you strength for that. Right? If, you're, if you're in the midst of making bad decisions with work or with money, like he's saying, I can give you strength for that. There's, and it's not like if you confess all of the issues, he's going to say, oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, you crossed the line. He's totally aware of the bad decisions you're making even right now. He's totally aware. And he's saying, come to me. Like, I want to give you the strength to be able to thrive, that you could look back at a lush vineyard and be like, dude, I contributed to heaven on earth. Like, that's what he wants you to be a part of. And so as we, 
as we come to the table, like, let Jesus just ask you those questions. As you take him in, be reminded that he's here for you. He's not pushing you aside given the bad decisions that you've made or are making. He's not pushing you aside. In fact, he's saying, come to the table. And as often as you partake of it, you're proclaiming that he, he died for you, friends. He died for you. And he wants you. He wants you to thrive in life. And so take him in, but, but let him ask those questions. As we sing, sing with, with the joy that he has not left you, that he's in constant pursuit of you. And so I'm gonna pray, and then I'll invite us to, uh, to the tables. Father, thank you that you, uh, you don't leave us to our own devices. You don't leave us to our own strength and our own weakness, really, for that matter. You don't leave us in our junk. You don't leave us in our brokenness. You don't leave us uh, to have to keep uh, moving in a direction that maybe even right now we know full well isn't good for us or for our, our spouse or our family or maybe even our parents or whoever else around that we might be bringing more brokenness into the world. And we plead with you, God, that you would help us to receive your love this morning, that you would help us to confess, you would help us to repent, that your spirit would so move in us. Oh, God, that we might look back at lush vineyards where your spirit just moved and planted and grew things that would astonish us. And so help us to do this. We need your strength to be able to do it. In Christ's name, amen.